Tagara here with author and UFC creator Art Davey. The book is called Is This Legal? Thanks for taking the time to speak with me today, Art. How are you doing today? Susan, it's great to be here with you, and this has been a particularly good week. <laughs> good. Art, right, you have a rich history. You're an entrepreneur, an advertising executive, a former Marine. I want to encourage everybody, by the way, new MMA fans and old MMA fans to read the book. I read it this week. It was fascinating. A rich history of MMA. How did you get the idea to start the UFC then? You know, I tell the story, Susan, in the book that I was an amateur boxer, not a very good one. But I had been taken down on the beach by a friend of a friend, a wrestler. And suddenly I realized that whatever I was doing in the gym, throwing jabs and, and right crosses and left hooks, wasn't all you needed to know about getting on with somebody who also had some skills. So that put the idea in my head. Mm -hmm. And later on when I was in the Marines, it was a topic that constantly came up for discussion when you got a couple of guys sitting around shooting the bull. Could Muhammad Ali have beaten Bruce Lee? Could, could Jack Dempsey have beaten, you know, uh, Strangler Lewis? So this kind of a topic, uh, when, when you realized a lot of guys were into it, planted a bug in my head. Years later, I'm in the advertising agency business. We had a beer client, my boss's client, and they said, come up with some great new ideas. And I thought, hey, how about a combat sport with basically no rules going all the way back to Pancration in ancient Greece. And you know, I wrote it up, I did this presentation, and they looked at it and said, look, it's a great idea, pass, fail, and all I had now was this huge file folder with this wonderful ideas, and in the file folder was an article about the Gracies in Playboy magazine, back in September 89. And that article said that the toughest man in America lived in Torrance, California. My next gig in advertising brought me to Torrance. Before you know it, I'm walking in his school, finally nailing him down. And he really couldn't get, Susan, what I was trying to do. He was thinking about the Gracie Challenge. He had this $100,000 challenge that he put out there to the martial arts. Quite frankly, nobody really taken up on it because there weren't that many people in the martial arts that had $100,000. So it was one of those things that hung out there, and yet my idea was a tournament mm -hmm. with eight different martial artists, and it was on pay-per-view. That's where we had to be. Took me two years to convince Orion that that's what we needed to do, and I did it by bribing him. I did a free advertising campaign for his videos. It brought in a ton of money, and suddenly I had real credibility with Orion Grace. He said, what are we going to do? I said, we're going to go get a TV partner. He said, how do we do that? I said, I'm going to approach everybody in pay-per-view. Now, I got turned down by Lou DiBella at HBO. I got turned down by Jock McLean at Showtime, by Michael Oresco over at ESPN. Everybody said to me, what else you got? I said, this is it. They said, look, the martial arts really don't work on television. Mm -hmm. Hey, it's good for a movie. You know, the karate kid. That's... But... They wanted to know if I was actually casting for a movie. I said, no, no, this is a real shoot. These guys are really going to be fighting. No rules. Everybody told me, look, there's the door. Don't let it hit you on the way out. So it took me another six, eight months to get Semaphore Entertainment. 
and they were doing concerts and music on television. But how many times a year could you bring Andrew Dice Clay to pay-per-view? You might be able to bring him once, you know, and then you could bring him maybe the next year if he did well. And they have been funded by Bertelsmann's music group, BMG, in Europe. Now that, those were deep pockets. So they were looking for a franchise and then I showed up. And it was Kismet. November 12, 1993, we did 90,000 buys. Amazing. It was amazing. I read also that Chuck Norris turned you down. Can you tell us that story as well? Well, you know, Horion and Chuck had done some seminars together. And Chuck was a very sharp guy when it came to being, you know, a TV and film star about the martial arts. He had been studying some Brazilian jiu-jitsu, some with the Gracies, and then some with their cousins, the Machados. So Chuck was a bright guy. But he and Horion had gotten a little bit sideways over money. And when I said to Horion, let's go out and talk to the Chuckster, he said, let's do it. He said, but look, he said, let me go in first. He said, let me kind of warm him up, kind of kind of get the air clear between us. And then he said, you come in and, and close him, just like you closed me. So I had a whole bunch of bullet points about the event written out on, a, on an index card. I sent Horion inside, and every one that Horion read off, Chuck looked at him and said, is this legal? Is this legal? Uh, you know, he, I guess he thought the Marines or the National Guard, you know, or, or, uh, or the sheriff was going to show up. And look at the time, he was doing Walker, Texas Ranger. They eventually did 208 episodes. That became a big hit for him. And, you know, he had, he had a lot of reputation to protect. And Chuck basically said, no, I can't come to the party. He didn't want to be seen ringside. He didn't want to be a color commentator. But I love to tell the story, Susan. And I tell it in the epilogue of my book, Is This Legal? Ten years later, I'm at Chuck's house. And I'm pitching him a scripted show called Spear about a rodeo cowboy who becomes a bounty hunter. And at one point with the agents and the writers in the room, somebody during a break mentioned the UFC. And Chuck was standing over by the fireplace and he turned to everybody in the group and he said, let me tell you something. Art Davey, I was wrong about the UFC. Yeah. That, must, that must have made you feel very, very, very special at that point because you had worked so hard on that project and you never gave up hope, really. Yes. Well, you know, Susan, that's really the story of the book. It's really a business story with all these wonderful personalities and fighters and managers and suits, but it's a story of persistence. It took me four years to recruit everybody into this parade. You know, it's like, uh, it's like John Milius once said to me, you got to get everybody in your movie. But once you understand what the script is, your job as director is to get everybody in their role and then direct them. And then magic will happen. He was right. How important was it, looking back, to have the Gracie family involved? I guess what I'm asking you is, do you think you could have done it without the Gracie family? You know, I, I give full credit to having the Gracie family part of this. Look, there were a lot of martial artists at the time that were talking about what they did was invincible in the magazines. And by the way, I went to Jim Coleman at Black Belt, and he said, look, what you're doing is dirty fighting. So in all fairness, having the Gracies who were willing to get down and roll and grapple and compete, fight with guys that would come into the school, not for 100000 but they their honor, was a great tool for me because it allowed me, I wasn't a black belt, I wasn't a black belt in anything, I was maybe a black belt in marketing, so it allowed me then to go call on 
other people in the martial arts, and I called on 38 different organizations, and most of them said to me, oh no, are you casting for a movie? I got a guy we can put in a movie about. I said, no, no this is a real fight. Oh, so we, we're not going to do that. It's been, we've been talking about that for years, but nobody's ever done it. So the Gracies were an essential component, and I give full credit to that family who had been doing it in Brazil for a generation or two. Big, big, big plus in my pocket when I went out to go pitch it. You know, as, you a, know, as, as a business owner myself, I found it interesting in the negotiations with SEG, uh, you sort of implied at some point that you had the TV deal, but you didn't. And I thought it took a lot of balls. So I wanted you to comment on that because uh, was that really, how did you do that? Explain that to me. <laughs> yes, that's, that's really a good question and a good point in the book. Because as I point out in the book, we began negotiating right after I met them in New York in April of 93. But we didn't sign that agreement, which morphed from four pages to 28 pages by the night of the event. And quite frankly, look, those guys were very professional and experienced in pay-per-view, concert promotion, event promotion. They had done Jimmy Connors versus Martina Navratilova. They had brought the judge to pay-per-view, Andrew Dice Clay, Bruce Springsteen. So I was dealing with some very sophisticated, bright show business people. I was an ad guy. And I got to tell you, for me, I, I had to keep my guard up and keep my jabs going because Bob Morowitz and his brother David, who was his attorney, were very smart guys. And you know, at one point, I guess we were playing a little poker. I had implied that I still hadn't really, you know, I hadn't killed any deal with ESPN or Prime Ticket, you know. So I was always trying to kind of playing a poker game with them. And it really came down to the night of the event when finally that day, Campbell McLaren said to me, you know, you got to sign this agreement. We can't put this show on pay-per-view unless there's a signed agreement. So you got to sign this thing today. Once I understood that, and I tell the story in the book, in the, uh, in the last chapter, before the fights, uh, there are no rules. That I sat there with a, a, a single malt scotch and I lit up a Cuban cigar. I had my PA, Ethan Milius, John Milius' son, helping me. And I sat down there in a conference call with Bob Morowitz in New York, because he didn't come to the first event. And his brother David in his house, Campbell McLaren there in the hotel, my attorney Don Moss in Burbank, and we just sat there and we did a, about an hour and a half on the phone, back and forth and back. Because what I wanted them to do was to pay for all the talent costs, not only the, the bonuses or the appearance fees, but the purse, starting with UFC 2. And we went round and round. We was throwing punches and back and jam. Finally, Bob threw up his hands. He said, look, he said, if that's what you want, if that's what's going to make this deal, all right, you win. And I had gotten what I wanted. Good for you. So it worked out in your favor. That uh, I don't know if I could have pulled that off. I think I might have caved too early if I was in your situation. So I admire you for that. That's uh, That takes a lot of tenacity. <laughs> Do you regret selling out after UFC 5 then? You know, people have asked me that question. Yeah. They say, Do you have any regrets? And you know, life is funny. Life is hills and valleys. I was very lucky. I was in the right place at the right time with the right plan. But look, you have to remember, and a lot of great old school hardcore fans know the story. We were finally banned on cable, on pay-per-view in 1997. Leo Henry finally, you know, closed the door on us. He was under pressure from the John McCain's of this world. And suddenly this thing is banned on pay-per-view, our major source of revenue. So I, I took a look at everything, including the fact that I didn't think that the Gracies were coming back to the UFC. 
Huh. I made the decision that we needed to sell. Getting out on top before the door closed was probably the right thing to do. So we did decide to sell. Horian initially wasn't real pleased with it, but you know, Hoist didn't return to the Octagon for 11 years. Because right. I was adding rules. I was adding weight classes, rounds, judging, uh, gloves, all the things that eventually led up to the unified rules of MMA adopted by you know, the New Jersey State Athletic Commission in 2000 and Nevada in 2001. So I decided it was time to sell. Now, in retrospect, you know, we can say, oh my God, you sold too early. But look, we were banned on cable. I stayed on board with the franchise for the next two years, up until December of 1997, January of 1998. And then Bob Marowitz finally sold the franchise to them for $2 million, banned on cable in 2001. And look, you got to give the Fertitas a lot of credit. Lorenzo and Frank, they invested $40, $50 million into this business. They got it into the mainstream. So, you know, you look back and you say, oh, what if, if only. But you know something? You have to realize in life that you get your shot, you take it, you do the best with it, and you move on. Good advice for any business owner. If you were putting together the first UFC show today, what fighters would you put on the card? Oh, you mean from an idea list of all the great ones? Yeah. Oh, well, I got to tell you, you know, one of my favorite fighters has always been Randy, the natural couture. I booked him into the UFC. He grew as a, as a, as a man, as a fighter. It's always a pleasure to do business with. Became the only guy to hold two uh, championships in two different weight classes in the MMA Hall, in the UFC Hall of Fame. So I had Randy Couture on the, uh, on the card right away. I'm a big fan of Frank Shamrocks. I like not too, yeah. Yeah, Frank, Frank was the UFC uh, MMA fighter of the decade when you look at the end of the 1990s. He was one of the first cross-trained, really bright guys who brought an awful lot to the octagon. Hey, he was undefeated in the octagon, our first middleweight champ. Great fighter. So there's two guys right off the bat. I'm a big fan of Don Fries. I booked him in the UFC. You know, he's in the Hall of Fame. Another guy that, you know, gave me everything he had. Uh, Mark Coleman, the hammer. Another favorite of mine, uh, while I was there, Mark became the dominant ground and pound, mm -hmm. king of the hill. Everybody was scared of Mark Coleman, believe me. I was a big fan of Mark Kurz, a guy that maybe in a sense didn't reach his full potential. Uh, look, I'm the guy also who booked in Tank Abbott. Uh, you know, he was, my, he was my Kimbo Slice. He was the guy that, you know, the martial artist hated me for bringing him in. Why are you bringing in a biker guy like this? This is not representing the martial arts, but I knew, as I said to Rowdy Roddy Piper yesterday in an interview, he had charisma. Yeah. And you know something, in this business you need charisma. Because part of what you're doing is sports entertainment, let's be honest. So there's just a partial list, and I don't want to leave an awful lot of guys out because there's been some great guys. Hey, today, look at John Jones. Look at, G, you know, look at GSP's career, BJ Penn, Pat Militich. The mm -hmm. list goes on and on. There has been a plethora, a plethora of fantastic fighters in the last 10 or 15 years, and it only gets better. Look at Ronda Rousey today. Exactly. Right, Rowdy Ronda. The, the sport needs five of her today. She's got everything you need to be the superstar that she is. Would you have ever predicted when you first started the UFC, you know, years ago, that women would be competing at the UFC level that they are now? Well, first of all, back in the day, under such pressure that we were under from the politicians and the media, I didn't anticipate putting women in. I figured this would make us even more of a, of a pariah. So there was no talk about it at the time. 
I had a few, you know, possible candidates. At the time, Darren Harvey, my old buddy, uh, was representing uh, Lucia Riker, who was a great kick fighter. And uh, later on, of course, he represented Ronda. At one time, he represented Boss Rutten. And we, you know, had a few discussions about it. But, you know, it was too preliminary, too early on, Susan, and I, it really wasn't the right time. But look, when the opportunity for Dana and Lorenzo and Frank finally presented itself to bring women in, I give them a lot of credit themselves for crossing that line and understanding that it was long overdue. And we have only seen the beginning of women in MMA. I'm very pleased to be able to give a pioneering award to, uh, to uh, Susan Knapp this December 6th at the Riviera Hotel in Las Vegas for her work as a pioneer in establishing the Invicta Fighting Championships out of Kansas City. I think we've only seen the beginning of what women's MMA is going to become. I think it's a very important thing because I think it's it's important as well because it builds self-esteem in women. So I'm excited for that as well. And I think it creates positive role models for women with that whole aspect of bullying as well. So I, I encourage that. I didn't know Shannon was getting an award. Congratulations to Shannon. I'll have to interview her on that. Tell me three things no one knows about you. Well, I guess one of the things that they don't know is that uh, I have a blue belt in jiu-jitsu. Okay. And, uh, and my instructor had a rough time with Eddie Bravo, who I did a podcast uh, back on the 24th of August. But uh, uh, he actually broke my ribs uh, it, with boxing gloves, trying to teach me how to avoid, you know, uh, a right hook to the ribs. And uh, that's a fact that people don't know about me. Um, I also think that probably a lot of people don't know that I was in the Marines and served and received a commendation with a combat V for my service of 11 months and nine days in the Republic of Vietnam back in 69 and 1970. Yeah. And the third thing is I'm not six feet tall. I'm actually not tall enough to be in the Hall of Fame. I think you need to be at least five foot eight. And I, and I, I never quite made that, Susan. <laughs> I think it's all, all about your, uh, your heart and soul, not about your height when it comes to the Hall of Fame. <laughs> and I'm sh certainly you, you qualify for that. Now we're gonna go to some fan questions. Doug, my partner at MMA Fight Fans, who set up this interview, and I want to thank him for that. Where do you see the UFC 10 years from now, Art? Well, you know, I said something recently in a, uh, in, in a tweet that, you know, it could be possibly in the next 10 years the UFC is competing with a big promotion out of Asia fighting for world MMA domination. You know, I'm old enough to remember that General Motors was one of the biggest car company in the world, and today Toyota is the biggest car company in the world. So things change. You know, and the, the franchise that I was involved in creating and being one of the founders certainly is on top of the world today. But, you know, we're going to see an awful lot of people coming into MMA from India, from China in the future. And, you know, I anticipate that the UFC will still be, if not the number one brand, certainly number two or number three. But it wouldn't shock me if also that they continue, you know, like an Apple or a Microsoft, to stay right on top of the food chain. So you don't think that then, from your perspective, as an MMA pioneer, you don't, do you ever think that Bellator or WSOF will ever catch up to where the UFC is? Well, you know, that's a very difficult question. And you know, uh, in advertising, a lot of us were big devotees of a book called Positioning, written by Trout and Rees. And they talk about the, the power of being number one, of getting into the market first and creating the genre. And you know, you, yeah. in warfare, you never attack the leader from, from a front position. You have to attack him from the side or from a guerrilla warfare standpoint. So the UFC enjoys an envy position 
the unassailable top spot. Now, it's possible to dethrone the number one, but let me tell you something. It takes an incredible plan, a lot of luck, a lot of money, yeah. a lot of capital. You put your finger right on the situation. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Doug from Doug. MMA Fight Fans also has another question to ask you. Who was your biggest influence as a business pro? You know, there's a, an individual who was a big influence on me. In fact, found a document. His name was Byron Eichen. He was a venture capitalist in Southern California, and he established the companies IVAC, IMED, Proxy, a lot of high-tech companies. Uh, and he, he was, uh, was an incredible influence. He taught me a lot about how to analyze the situation market analyze a company within a company. He used to say, find out what a man or woman really wants to do every day, really, what they enjoy doing. Because in the job to be, in the job to come, that's what they're going to gravitate to. They may tell you that they like to do this and that, but you'll find that they're really a person that needs to be on the phone or just talking to customers. So Myron gave me an incredible template to understand a lot of things in business. We used to call him Doc Savage, the man of bronze. He was a superhero. Wow. One final question from Doug at MMA Fight Fans. The UFC Hall of Fame, do you think the UFC is judgmental on who makes it in rather than actually putting fighters in accordance to their contributions? Examples, Bass Rutten, Frank Shamrock. Why are they not in the UFC Hall of Fame? Well, you know, that's a really good point, and I, I don't want to be, you know, shooting from the hip and saying automatically that this is the issue, but I think that any fan who points out that Bass Rutten and Frank Shamrock are not in the UFC Hall of Fame, that's either an error by omission or maybe an error by design. And I can't answer which one. But I could certainly say that I'll be happy for the day when both of those individuals are wearing that crown. Julian Earl edit Victorious wants to know, did Zane Frazier's history with Frank Dukes factor in him being picked for UFC 1? You know, it really wasn't a factor at all. Uh, Frank Dukes, I had an article from an L.A. staff writer in my files, which I still have, in which he had questioned the, the legitimacy of Dukes' claims about this tournament that he was involved in in the Caribbean and his championship within it. And uh, he never approached me. I've never spoken to Frank Dukes ever, either in person or on phone. So I wasn't particularly influenced by hearing from Zane Fraser at the United States Martial Arts Trade Show in Burbank and I believe this was March of 93, that he and Frank had gotten into a brawl over at the Century Plaza Hotel near LAX, and that he apparently had kicked Frank's butt. Quite frankly, what really influenced me with, uh, with putting in uh, Zane Fraser was his kickboxing credentials and the endorsement that he had from Frank Trejo. Trejo said to me, Art, this guy can punch, and uh, he's a legitimate super heavyweight kick fighter. You know, this guy is a serious... Uh, uh, candidate for you and more than anything that was the factor really had nothing much to do with Frank Dukes I couldn't verify whether that was just a shoving match at a hotel or not congratulations on being inducted into the 2014 Legends Hall of Fame what does this honor mean to you you know it's really a big thrill for me because as I pointed out in in one posting that I made you know to be included with those real tough guys the guys who earned their you know their their plaudits and their 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 uh, accolades in the in the in a ring or a cage you know to be included with those guys who earned their bones the hard way it's pretty much of a thrill for me and of course to be there at the same time and enjoying this honor with my good friend Big John McCarthy is really a double thrill also my good buddy 
and my uh, and my editing partner on the Is This Legal? The book, Sean Wheelock, the play-by-play man for Bellator, is going to be presenting me with oh, this wow. honor, with this ring. So it's going to be really a wonderful night. Frank Shamrock will be there, Jens Pulver, uh, my good buddy, the fight professor, Stephen Quadros. It's going to be like old home week. I'm really looking forward to it, Susan. Sort of like the Monsters Ball all over again? <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. How would you like to be remembered, Art? I'd like to be remembered as a pioneer, because yeah. that's what I was. I was a guy who was willing to go out to the edge where nobody was and to be able to make something happen. I used to be able to go into the Torrance Library, research something, and then get back on the phone and sell it. And I did that all alone. And that's what I do. I had done it once before. I've done it since then. And that's what my greatest skill is, is deciding that there's an area that can be developed. And for me to go out and cultivate it and plant the seeds and build the town. Later on, somebody may come along and make a city out of it, but that's not really what I do. But somebody's got to go out there into the wilderness. And that's my nature and that's my destiny. That's what I do. Anything else you'd like to add today, Art? I'd just like to say this. If anybody wants to know who the players were, how it all came together, and uh, what were all of the uh, all of the dramas that went into making the UFC happen, pick up my book, Is This Legal? The Inside Story of the First UFC from the man who created it, me, Art Davey. It's out there on Amazon. You can get it at Barnes & Noble uh, and many other places where books are sold. And if you're an MMA fan, to find out how this all began will help you enjoy the sport a bit better because everything was there in that initial big bang. I couldn't agree more. I do want to encourage all fans of MMA, new and old, to pick up the book, Is This Legal? It's not only a history of the MMA, but it is a great testimony to one man's courage and determination to follow through on making his idea into a reality. RDV, thank you so much for your interview. I wish you good luck and congratulations on being inducted into the Legends MMA Hall of Fame. <laughs>